Hello, I'm Evan Reese, an Asia-Pacific analyst at Stratfor, and this podcast is being brought to you by Stratfor Worldview, the world's leading geopolitical intelligence platform. Individual, team, and enterprise memberships are available at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe. We tend to be much more focused on the kinetic end of uh, warfare. They're more focused on the ideological and informational and psychological end. That's their key strategy is to essentially undermine their adversaries from within. Hi, I'm Fred Burton. Welcome to the Stratfor Pen and Sword podcast. I'm here today with General Rob Spalding, who has written Stealth War, How China Took Over While America's Elite Slept. Thanks for being on our podcast today. Great to be here. Thank you. This is an engaging topic, and I see that you certainly, after 26 years with the U.S. Air Force, you were a China strategist for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and you also served as a defense attache in China, just so our audience understands uh, your background, sir. And I found it very interesting that in going through your book, and I would like to understand this. This is fascinating to me. Why is the U.S. unable to fight a potential war without China? Well, I think it's, uh, you know, as we started to look at this, it began with uh, just looking at the impact to our um, defense industrial base of globalization and particularly our, you know, the strong position that the Chinese have uh, within the supply, the global supply chain. And as you begin to drill into that, you recognize that uh, across, you know, whatever industry, uh, particularly uh, key industries for the defense department um, or markets uh, or uh, technologies, that the you know essentially China has so f- insinuated itself into the global supply chain that essentially it is a key uh, element of delivering uh, joint joint force power anywhere in the world uh, for not just kind of the 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 uh, consumables we use but also the weapon systems themselves. General, so. How has China been using sabotage and espionage to upend the market? Well, that was uh, that was brought to me um, to my attention in the fall of 2014 via a briefing that had been prepared by one of the top five auditing firms in the United States, and it, it detailed, you know, uh, vignette after vignette of how um, the Chinese Communist Party had used, um, you know, essentially tradecraft to impact the businesses of across many industries of American companies and in order to put them under duress in order for them to acquire some element of intellectual property or technology and um, you know that's when we really started looking at this as a phenomenon that um, was uh, across a nation and and really what you see is a whole of nation um, uh, effort going on to impact uh, the U.S. economic competitiveness, which impacts our ability to deliver um, national security for the American people. And they're certainly trying to uh, uh, focus their attention on the startup market and, and investing in cutting-edge technology. Is that is that correct? Yes, and in fact, um, you know, I had some hand in uh, the DIUX report that was prepared um, in, in kind of. 
uh, helping um, focus, channel attention towards that. And that's true. You know, this uh, inability by uh, startups, particularly high-tech startups, not the, you know, software kind like Uber and, uh, and Airbnb, but really cutting-edge technology startups uh, that were coming out of Silicon Valley or other um, uh, highly innovated places in, uh, in the country. Most of that investment that they were getting to actually – um, you know, get through that valley of death for startups was coming from China. And it was um, it was for the purpose that they could acquire this technology. And do you think that it's for military application or intelligence services application for like the PLA and the MSS? Well, they have a program called C- Civilian uh, Military Fusion, which really uh, orients all elements of technology development in China to be um, used both for the military and civilian sectors. That's uh, pretty scary. Now let's focus our attention here at home. Um, how has China been successful in silencing dissent in America? Well, I think the the greatest example that's been the most um, visible was uh, recently the general manager of the Houston Rockets uh, tweeted out a support for um, the people of Hong Kong, and immediately the Chinese Communist Party called for the NBA to fire him. Now, of course, Adam Silver and the NBA stood stood by uh, the general manager, but at the same time, all the products, um, uh, apparel, and other um, fan um, paraphernalia in China disappeared from. Uh, store shelves disappeared from any online shopping in China almost immediately, and um, and the, the the ramifications to the MBA um, were s- severe, uh, very significant. Now they didn't fire Daryl uh, Morey, but uh, as I note in in Stealth War, Marriott Corporation had a mid-level employee, Roy Jones, who liked to tweet about Tibet course, didn't understand the geopolitics uh, surrounding Tibet and China. And as a result, the Chinese Communist Party um, called up the Marriott Corporation and said, uh, told them to fire the guy and apologize, which they did. You know, this is not just Marriott or the MBA. It's also Cathay Pacific. It's Tiffany's. It's Mercedes-Benz. Um, it's happening across the corporate um, sector, um, not just to U.S. corporations, but to corporations all over the globe that are essentially, because of the strong market pool of China and their financial and economic relationships um, incentivized by the Chinese Communist Party, they are um, using those relationships, the, meaning the Chinese Communist Party, to, to force corporations to essentially abide by their standards of speech and, uh, and certainly the way that they portray themselves or they portray China. Help me understand these Confucius Institutes, and and why is China funding them in the United States? So, uh, you know, unbeknownst to uh, most people, uh, university funding really declined significantly after 2008 financial crisis in the United States. At the same time, funding from Chinese students in U.S. universities increased to the point where, you know, we have over 400,000 Chinese kids in American universities, and these – and these be, represent such a significant part of these uni, most university budgets now that um, the Chinese Communist Party can call up a university president and say, "Look, if you host the Dalai Lama or you, um, you know, host this person that's talking about um, Uyghur issues or uh, Hong Kong, then we can 
pull all the students out of your university, thus forcing you into the red. This has been used um, uh, time and again uh, to some effect, um, not always successfully, but it is used. Um, the Chinese uh, Confucius Institutes are also a place where uh, the university itself does not get to ch- pick the syllabus. In fact, the syllabus is picked by the Chinese Communist Party. Confucius Institutes themselves are funded by the propaganda arm of the Chinese Communist Party called the United Front Work Department. And uh, they're used to essentially um, teach what the Chinese Communist Party wants uh, for uh, curriculum with regard to what China is and what they represent. And it also is a a forum for, um, you know, essentially propagandizing the student body. And then, you know, between the the Confucius Institutes and the Chinese Students Associations, they are used to monitor the Chinese students to make sure they don't become too Americanized uh, and to have each of the students report on each other so that uh, they can make sure that um, they stay true to the Chinese Communist Party while abroad. We'll get back to General Spalding in a minute. Interviewing authors here at Stratfor is a real pleasure for me. Not only do I learn something from listening to these fabulous authors we've had on our series, uh, but I also uh, love to hear how the authors put their works together, and it certainly makes me a better writer. Uh, I would encourage you to subscribe to our podcast, and uh, if you like what you hear here, please consider subscribing to our digital publication. We have lots of material on our digital publication from China to great power competition to the intelligence community or how it works. And for our podcast listeners, we have a special offer that I would encourage you to take advantage of, and it's at stratfor.com slash Fred. General Spalding, based on your experience in this military realm with China, looking at it from the U.S. perspective – How do you rate their military in general in comparison to what we have as a nation or let's say Russia? Well, I think that the um, the interesting thing that they've chosen to do with their military is really create a military that's designed for the region. um, And they haven't tried to copy or emulate uh, as much the U.S. military. Now, they do have, you know, airplanes like the J-20, but – you know, in a lot of ways, the way they've uh, used their money is to develop these um, essentially very uh, <coughs> effective and efficient uh, um, intermediate range ballistic and cruise missiles to essentially force uh, U.S. forces back from the first island chain. So they have the carrier killer ballistic missiles. Of course, they have other ballistic missiles that they use to target our airfields and bases around the region and our logistics hubs. And so right now, if you look at today, the laydown were all these weapons. They could, in the matter of uh, literally minutes, um, decimate a lot of our forces in the region and keep our aircraft carriers out. So they built a very cost-effective and efficient means of keeping out, making it, uh, make, making the first island chain uh, denied territory. And the, and the ranges on these weapons are increasing, so it almost stretches now to the second island chain. And at the same time, We've been so preoccupied with the Middle East and focusing on uh, militaries that were designed to fight in Europe and the Middle East that we have not created a, a, a counterpoint to what the Chinese have created and really makes it difficult for us to project power in the region. 
Furthermore, we were a part of the uh, Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, which prevented us from building intermediate-range uh, ballistic, conventional ballistic and cruise missiles. And so while we did pull out of that in August, I think it's going to be a while before we can um, create any kind of momentum in that direction. And we just really need to rethink the region in terms of our military force posture there. And, uh, and we can't try to overlay a military built for Europe or the Middle East because it's not really designed for the great distances of water that you face in the Indo-Pacific. That's fascinating. And when you look at cyber, what what is China doing in the cyber arena today? Well, I think in the cyber arena, that's really where um, their game is so far ahead of ours as to be, um, you know, just really uh, in a league of its own. I think, you know, of course, everybody understands you can hack into things and, uh, you know, like do things like Stuxnet. Um, clearly, they could uh, in place things uh, in our grid and bring our grid down. Uh, I, I worry less about that, and I worry more about kind of the constant um, attack of our companies and, and their intellectual property, but also the, 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 the slow undermining of our society using um, social media networks and uh, the elements of big data and artificial intelligence and machine learning that has been developed by um, by Silicon Valley and other um, large tech companies in the United States. So essentially, the Chinese have taken taken these um, technologies and business models, employed them in China, but also moved beyond just um, using them for. Uh, driving revenues are also using them for to collect in, intelligence and um, and and drive influence. And so, uh, you know, I, I referenced the um, the report "Engineering Global Consent" uh, put out by the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, where the researcher Samantha Hoffman details uh, Global Tone Communication Corporation, which is a Chinese big data and AI company. Uh, they do tra- language translation in 65 languages using machine learning, and they build their product or their technology in the, into many Huawei products. GTCom, which is a, the short um, name, a moniker for the company, collects two to three petabytes a year to do this. But because GTCom is jointly owned by the Ministry of Finance and the propaganda arm of the Chinese Communist Party, that data is not just used for language translation. It goes for intelligence collection and influence. And so as we move to the 5G world and away from the 4G world, the U.S. really dominates the 4G world. Facebook, Amazon, Google, Apple, um, Android are the kind of the platforms. In 5G, the network becomes a platform. And in that, the leading company today is Huawei. And essentially what China seeks to do is subsidize Huawei using the revenues earned by Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent, which are essentially the equivalent of Facebook, Amazon, and Google, Google, and use that data not just for um, essentially dominating the global economy, much like we did after the introduction of the iPhone uh, and 4G, and then to use that to also insinuate themselves into into democracies. And so 5G is different than 4G in that, you know, today you push a um, uh, you open an app on your smartphone to call an Uber. In 5G, you just walk out your door, say Uber, camera picks up your face, does facial recognition, reads your lips, sends a car, may or may not have a driver and speeds you on your way. All of that data that's collected by that system is essentially what China is going for because what they realize and what U.S. tech companies realize was all the value was in the data itself. And so data 
uh, in the 21st century is a strategic resource, much like uh, oil was in the 20th century. And it is that data that China seeks to dominate so that they can dominate artificial intelligence and machine learning and really global commerce in the 21st century. That's very thought-provoking, General. When you look at uh, cyberspace in general, uh, they certainly are ramping that up too in in the space war. Is that correct? Well, they they are, and that's because primarily because we have built um, most of our capacity to do um, you know C four ISR in space. You know, of course, if you go into the region, the Indo Pacific region, they have capabilities in space, but they also have capabilities on land in the air, and so they they keep they build redundant capacity that's locally derived and we don't do the same so what that does is really give them an incentive to go after our assets in space because if they knock them out then we really become blind uh, unlike uh, them uh, in 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 uh, in their backyard they actually continue to be able to fight even if you take out their space assets so we need to uh, actually do what they did in the region which is build more locally in uh, uh, locally derived and airborne assets to allow us to, you know, de-incentivize the attack of our space-based assets. General, you spent a career studying China, and if you had to evaluate the capabilities of uh, the PLA and the MSS from an intelligence uh, community aspect as it pertains to either our DIA or CIA or or British MI6, how would you rate the PLA and MSS from uh, that aspect in the intelligence arena? No, there's they're so far um, outstrip what we're capable of doing, both just in terms of the resources they have and, and certainly the number of people, but also in their in that they focus on that as their primary means of attack. You know, we're we tend to be much more focused on the kinetic end of uh, a warfare. They're more focused on the ideological and informational and psychological end of warfare. That's their key. Um, that's their key strategy. Is essentially undermine their adversaries from within and so because we don't look that look at the world that way it makes us um it it allows it it means that we don't focus our resources there we don't focus our attention there and they're very good at what they do because they 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 blend um the power of their uh, enormous numbers with high technology that we've essentially given them Well, thank you for sharing that, and thank you for writing Stealth War, How China Took Over While America's Elites Slept. It's authored by Brigadier General Robert Spaulding, U.S. Air Force retired, and thank you for being on the Stratfor podcast today, General. Thank you. For those of you who are interested in more information on uh, China or the intelligence uh, that we follow here at Stratfor, I would encourage you to visit stratfor.com slash subscribe. And I'm Fred Burton, and thanks for listening.